welcome to Of Dust and Divinity, an ongoing conversation with makers, thinkers, and doers, where we ask big questions of the small things. It is a picture of shared experiences, even if it's in different locations, I mean, countries across the world, but it's the same feelings, that feeling of worry and fear um, for your children, for your family. They're sharing experiences that are connecting them, that they have an understanding of each other that people who don't go through that will not have. Similar with you, what you're saying, Caven, you had that feeling of experience under the bridge of feeling dehumanized just because of where you were, your location. At least knowing that feeling gives you empathy for others. Of Dust and Divinity is an ongoing conversation carrying threads from one episode to the next. Like, if the podcast itself were a table in the back corner of your local pub, and each round of guests are like friends gathered at the table in free-flowing conversation. At the table with me today are beautiful souls who I cannot wait for you to meet. Here they are. Hi, I'm Becca. In my work, I partner with World Relief Sacramento, leading an after-school program for refugee children. I'm a wife and mother. I'm a white woman in my 30s. I have a degree in theology and cross-cultural communication, though I would say living cross-culturally has been my greatest educator. I follow Jesus and he's changed my life. If I had a clone, she would be a physical therapist in Malawi, Africa at Cure Hospital where children receive free orthopedic surgeries. Uh, Hi, my name is Mimi. Um, I'm originally from Kenya, but currently living in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, I identify as a black woman in my 30s. I have a degree in family and human services and I'm currently working as a homeless outreach specialist for community advocates. Um, My team helps individuals experiencing homelessness uh, that have a serious mental illness or a co-occurring substance disability. Um, And the individuals are usually on the streets or in places not meant for human habitation. Um, I've been doing that now for about um, almost four years. Uh, If I could clone myself and have two jobs, uh, my clone would work at a bakery specifically one that would cater to people with food allergies. Hi, and I'm your host, Caben Kramer. I'm a fourth-generation California farmer farming walnuts on fertile concow land along the edge of the Feather River. I'm a husband and a father to two awesome kids. I identify as a white male, and I'm loving my 30s. Formally, I'm educated as an engineer, though I've never actually practiced engineering as a profession. I identify as a follower of Jesus and find the teachings and lifestyle of Jesus attractive. If I could clone myself and do two occupations, my clone would probably be a cultural anthropologist. So what what does it look like to be an advocate for that at-risk population and give them a voice? Um, I mean, I would say it's, it's really difficult for the at-risk population to get the help that they need. Um, I think sometimes it's either they've gotten help in the past and burned a lot of bridges, whether it's through different organizations in the community or family and friends. But, um, you know, some people have had family and friends that have been really supportive of either been able to pay for them to um, have housing, um, be in treatment, those kind of things. And then unfortunately, either 
um, those people become burned out or just don't have enough resources to help that person. Um, so I think, and then there are others that just never had that support to begin with. So um, I think trying to be an advocate in the sense of being a voice um, mm. and st stepping in um, when there's times that someone may even be advocating for themselves and they're not being heard. Right. Um, which mm. I can't imagine. That's, I can't imagine that frustration of there's times when I haven't been heard and I have sometimes more resources um, or people that can support me in, in different ways. So I think it's taking that knowledge that I have or information and um, doing the best that I can to assist someone and also um, meeting them where they're at, uh, not requiring, that, requiring them to be at a certain point before we reach out and help. Um, I think that's the biggest thing is... Um, some people may be ready to use less or not use any more. Um, some are willing to engage, and that may take a while before they're willing to talk about housing um, or going into shelter. Um, so I think just people knowing that it's not as simple as, well, if they're given this opportunity for housing, they will automatically go in. Um, or if they have a place where they can get treatment, then they will go ahead and get treatment, and it's, it's, that's not the case. Mm. Um, I think it's it's meeting people where they're at and when they're ready for that next step, whether they are or not, or they're just um, comfortable where they're at, um, working with that and, and not pushing someone when they're not ready, I think is the biggest thing as well. Wow. Yeah. And that, and it just it feels like we just crave quick fixes so mm -hmm. badly as a mm -hmm. culture and a community. And then you add that craving to the stigma of like, laziness or some, you know, really derogatory, like undeservingness or whatever it is, like the work that you do is so layered really Correct. against both you and your clients, as far as advocating for them to have like a meaningful voice and a voice that matters. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that that is important because like you said, I, I don't think people see the layers. Uh, it's not, it's not, it's not that simple. There's a lot going on um, with each individual and, and the, the circumstances that brought them to where they are. Um, and I think people remembering that it's not a homeless person. It's it's a person experiencing homelessness. Mm. Um, and, you know, it can, anyone can experience homelessness. It, it can be someone you know, or some people do, do have family members or friends who, who have experienced homelessness. So um, I think it's just, remembering that they're a person that um, needs someone to advocate for them and uh, kind of meet, meet them where they're at. Um, yeah, and think, see them as, as a human and connecting connecting with them on that level. Such critical work for all of us, right? Whether we're mm -hmm. working with those experiencing homelessness or those experiencing autism or those experiencing racism or those experiencing anything. Correct. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And mm. I mean, sometimes it's something small, but it's, it's still something. Um, so I think instead of just, well, get someone housed, well, there's steps that, that lead to that, whether they accept housing or even if that resource is available. So I, um, it's starting small, um, mm. whatever that, whatever that work is that someone is doing. Um, and not being discouraged when, you know, there are times that you offer someone something and they, they're not interested in, being okay with that. Oh man, that'd be so hard and, for me. Yeah. 
not letting your own biases come in and um, pu pushing someone. I think that that can we can easily do that when we're like, well, this this makes sense. You know, why why wouldn't you kind of move forward and this is being offered, um, but knowing if, if someone's not ready, that that's that's okay as well. Do you ever struggle with carrying personal guilt when things when when there's a negative outcome? despite your efforts to provide solutions? Um, I, I think that is something that we struggle with or I struggle with sometimes. Um, and it's it's hard to see um, someone who's hurting or someone that needs needs that assistance and maybe things don't work out for them. Um, or, or you're, you know, we're limited in what we can provide and, and how we can assist as well. Um, so knowing knowing our limitations as well, because we, we can't fix everything. It would it'd be great if we could. Um, right. A lot of people think that way. I, I wish I could solve homelessness and just all of the other things that are going on in the world right now. But um, unfortunately, that's not how life works. So mm -hmm. um, it's being being happy with the small victories and, and not taking it personally when there are um, circumstances that don't work out as, as you would have thought they would. Um, Becca, what can you unpack a little bit more for us what it is for you you and your after school program and and what that looks like in your community? Sure. So, uh, oh my goodness, I can't even remember how many years it's been. About three years. We uh, just started. Well, we moved into our neighbor neighborhood intentionally because we knew we wanted to work and be in relationship with um, the arriving refugee community in Sacramento. Uh, so we were very strategic in where we were moving to. And it started very organically, just in the neighborhood park, our kids playing with the neighborhood kids and Luke, my husband, getting to know the dads, me getting to know the wives and mothers. So it was just really just building relationship uh, naturally out on the playground. Uh, and then as we got to know different families, we would hear of different struggles that they were having, uh, especially with the children and the education system and un trying to understand the American education system when maybe they haven't had the opportunity to go to school in their home country uh, or it wasn't safe to go um, and English isn't their first language. So then there's lots of questions of what certain things mean. So as we heard their, their stories, we just kind of would gather in the park intentionally saying, hey, let's get together, we'll play some games. If you have questions about homework, we can try to be of assistance. Um, and as more and more parents were have, you know, coming with their kids or sending their kids to the park to meet with us, uh, we just realized that the need was great and we needed to be more um a little bit a little bit more 
I'm just trying to think of the right word. Um, we needed to have things set up a little bit better to actually make an impact and empower parents and kids to feel comfortable with the new, their new education system. So we partnered up with World Relief and we moved actually onto school site. That has made such a huge difference in, in, in impact with relationship and with the kids and empowering them with their homework and uh, relationship, their relationships with their teachers. So we've been on school site for a couple of years now. And of course, when COVID hit and everything was distance learning, then that brought out a whole new, <laughs> a whole new set of issues. But um, our real goal, I would say, is to empower parents and students to understand the American school system and connect them with their local neighbors, with their sacrament, other Sacramento residents, uh, so that there's no longer a feeling of, oh, I'm the newcomer and I'm trying to figure things out to move past that to, this is my neighborhood and this is my community. Actually, one of the dads was playing soccer with my husband and he was saying how great it is to have these pickup games because they don't feel like refugees anymore. They feel like neighbors. And the friend standing by my husband said, that's exactly right. You're not, you're mm. our neighbor now. Yeah. So it, to me, that just shows the beauty of whatever table you're setting for mm. your neighbors, whether it's an actual table or a soccer field or a school desk. Uh, that's the goal, to have relationships begin and being built so that there isn't a feeling of other but of us and we. That's a wonderful image you painted of setting the table. And I love it because you connected setting the table at a school desk. Can you unpack what that means for you? Yeah, we're really intentional with the kids in the after-school program. It's called the Welcome Club because we want them to know you are absolutely welcome here. Um, so we are very intentional of uh, listening, uh, asking questions that are not a yes and no response, but that will dig in deeper and allow kids to express how they're doing. So for example, there was uh, something scary that happened at our local elementary school. A child brought a weapon to school and uh, after school that day, it just so happened that we were having welcome club and we were able to unpack how everybody was feeling. Mm. Um, school counselors on site were amazing. We have some awesome counselors. So we are not uh, necessarily um, trained professionals as far as um, like counseling children when they need like that um, professional help. But mm -hmm. we are there to connect them in a very uh, relational, warm handoff, not just a piece of paper with a name, 
name and number on it, but like actually having school counselors come in when needed. Mm -hmm. But we were able to talk through about feelings um, and how kids felt and uh, making sure that they felt heard and that they knew that this, this is your school too. Like, how are you, how are you feeling about what happened and what can we, what can we do to make sure everybody's feeling welcomed here and safe and accepted? You know, it, it's amazing because it seems like as adults, I'll just speak for myself. As an adult, it can be really hard for me to check in with my own emotions and like give space for my kids to feel their emotions and other things. So being able to facilitate that in you know, a fairly large setting, um, that's that's amazing. That's incredible. That's got to be changing people's lives. I am hoping that through our times together and the relationships that are being built, that these kids know how valuable they are, that they see themselves as valuable, and then that they see others as valuable. Mm, yeah, that's such a powerful lesson. Can we all learn that? <clears throat> Can we just all, as, as a nation, as a world, can we just all go to Becca's After School Club and learn that lesson, please? So Becca, one thing that I think is incredible, Becca, is that you guys did something that just sounds amazing and yet just so few people do it, right? Like you just hung out with people and then from hanging out your vocation emerged, which seems pretty rare. And that might've been common thousands of years ago when everyone was just in some small village together. And so they were and there. Someone was like, oh, well, someone needs to make a horseshoe. Okay. I'll become the blacksmith, right? Like where vocation just kind of emerges from the community ethos. But that's pretty rare now, right? In our really structured economy, that's really driven by profit and consumerism. And yet here you guys are in the middle of 21st century North America in California doing it. Um, does that register for you at all? Do, do you I do you see yourself as being like, yeah, like we've really stepped out and forged a path in, in a unique way that you're really proud of? Or is, are you just kind of like, well, of course we did that. What else would we do? How, how are you relating to that? Of course we did that because it's so awesome. I love my neighbors. Um, I love what I do. I love connecting with the kids and working in the schools, uh, helping everybody feel more connected and part of the community and, and kind of building a scaffolding for that mm. so that can it can be taken down when they're established, you know, because it's not always going to be needed, right? As these kids grow and they get get more uh, comfortable with their new home, um, they won't need that. But hopefully the relationships will still be standing, right? Mm. So I'm a little bit of, of course, this is the best thing in the world. Why wouldn't you want to do this? Sometimes when people ask me questions, I almost sound defensive because it shocks me that people wouldn't do this. Like, how could you not reach out to your neighbors? People are awesome. Yeah, but, but you, you don't just reach out to your neighbors. And I think that's what stands out to me is that you've actually built a career out of presence with your neighbors, which is, which is quite a few steps beyond just getting to know your neighbors, which admittedly, many of us have a hard time with as it is. Yeah, I think what I, I mean, of course I love 
me, just myself, getting to know my neighbors. But I think one of the most beautiful things I get to be a part of is not just setting a table for me and this other person to connect, but to introduce my awesome neighbors to some other awesome people and bring them in, right? To become friends and then grow to family. Um, mm. that, that to me is, don't set a table for your own selfish ambitions, but think broader and think connecting others, right? Not just to yourself, but those others connecting together too. Man, isn't that just the cry of our souls? Like, isn't that just the most human visceral cry to be known and loved and connected to humanity in some meaningful way? That's amazing. Which is why I think what you guys were talking about earlier, um, about what's happening, all this craziness in the world, when we lack that human connection, we're not whole, right? Mm. And then we don't see the world and others in a whole way when we're missing part of ourselves, which is that human connection. Correct. Mm. Yeah, that's huge. Um, I think that's definitely a part of what's going on now. And I mean, obviously things look different with COVID, but um, even just for myself, I'm finding there's things I've taken for granted, like, oh, I can see certain friends or I, I can go into their home and have a meal. Um, but that's not necessarily the case anymore. So what does it look like to still be in community, but socially distanced or uh, socially distanced in a way that's comfortable for that individual because everyone has different things that I think they're comfortable with right now, whether it's I, I would rather you be on my porch or in my backyard or depending on the relationship you have, I'm okay with you being in my home. So I think um, it's, it's been an adjustment for me. So I think it's definitely an adjustment for a lot of individuals who feel, I think, very alone right now since they don't have, they're not able to have that same connection. Yeah. And, and Mimi, you're working with a population that is notorious for having a stereotype of kind of being alone or being ostracized. Um, and, and I was thinking back to something that Becca said, she talked about how she's building scaffolding that she hopes won't be needed long-term yet again, the homeless community has this kind of stigma around it of, um, high recidivism of, of coming back to it. So how are you relating to, yeah, that sense of loneliness, that sense of, um, you know, pouring yourself into something and how much is enough to kind of move people from one place to another. Can you speak to that at all? Um, and like you said, I think we're finding that even more difficult now um, because there are, the resources are very limited right now. Um, so it's hard when uh, we're seeing the numbers going up of um, homeless individuals that um, we are checking in on each week. And when we meet them, I, I don't have anything to offer on my team struggles with the fact that we can do a wellness check, but um, there's not places to house them right now where all of our hotels that we're using or shelter spaces are full. Um, or some people, because of COVID, are not comfortable going into shelter, which is understandable. Mm, um, yeah. So that's just, and even um, some people, I think, would have human contact in the sense of they might hang out at the library all day. Uh, there's certain restaurants that would let them sit um, there all day, but now those are not options anymore. 
Um, so a lot of them don't even have those places to frequent or to be able to sit and be around other people, even if they're not necessarily engaging with other people. Mm. So they're already in a really difficult situation, perhaps wrestling through some kind of mental illness or chemical addiction. And then studies have just proven over and over again that human connection, meaningful human connection, is one of the strongest antidotes or at least mitigants to both mental health and chemical addiction. So I can, I, I actually can't imagine, um, because it's not, it's not my reality. Um, but I can just, I'm trying to paint a mental picture of putting myself in, in that position where already the community of homeless tend to be quote unquote, kind of outside the bounds of nominal society, or at least that's how nominal society treats them. And in college, I became friends with quite a few people living on the streets and would spend the night underneath the bridge. And I remember being, being handed food from church trucks on Saturday mornings and people not even looking me in the eyes, even though I was a college student two miles away at the private university. But just because I was sleeping on quote unquote, the wrong side of the fence that night, I lost my humanity to those people who were trying to be charitable. Mm -hmm. And, and so, so that's, so, I mean, this, I have felt that stigma and I, and yet I can't even understand it because I don't live in it. Right. Correct. And now it's just exacerbated and it's just so much more extreme now. Um, yeah. How are, how are people doing? Um, I mean, it, it is a struggle and you, you're meeting people that are just, you know, some get angry, which is understandable because we don't have anything to offer. And, um, it's hard when someone keeps calling you each week and, you know, each time you're saying, I, I still don't have an update, I don't have a space for you. Um, and a lot of our, like I'm saying now, a lot of our visits um, or when we're in the community, it's, it's just checking in on someone's mental health and well-being and more of a wellness check just to, hey, if, you know, we have coffee, we have a meal for you, let's connect with you, although we don't have a place for you to go right now. Man, that can be a hard place for you to be in too, just for your own mental health of like bearing witness to this incredibly crucial need. And then in some ways finding yourself kind of powerless, maybe, I don't know if you relate to that at all, of really being able to do what just seems so obvious as like the most basic next step and yet, and yet not being able to provide that. Correct. Um, uh, definitely there are days where it's, it's very frustrating because you you wish you had the means to provide like you're saying the base the most basic thing of a safe place to be and be able to for them to feel comfortable enough um, just starting there and not even being able to offer that um, is hard and you know knowing that obviously we we as a team cannot solve everyone's problems um, sometimes it's just something small that we do but it's hard when not only are you seeing people that are struggling, those numbers are going up. It's not something that, oh, you know, homelessness is, is kind of being reduced. There's, there's not as many people mm. outside. It's unfortunately the opposite is having, happening, especially because of COVID. Um, mm. There are more people outside. Um, uh, people are being evicted now, you know, because for a while mm. that wasn't an issue. Yeah. So there's a lot of people that were housed, but now we will 
start seeing outside and it's not just single males we're seeing families now um so that's that's really difficult um as you see families like you were saying like it's not just men it's it's fam- whole families how and with some schools being closed or starting the school year distance learning how is that then going to affect what these children the support and the contacts and the relationships that they would have had in person, how is that going to affect them? Um, and that is something actually I was talking to a coworker about the other day when we ran into a mom um, with several children and a lot of them were school age. Um, and like you're saying, you know, if, if some places are going to do virtual learning, whether it's just for a while or it's a whole year, um, a lot of people don't have a place to even, like I was saying, the libraries, maybe you could go get Wi-Fi. Um, or there's meals that are provided for children at school. Um, and for a lot of the families right now, they're just surviving. So, it's, you know, their, their main focus is not where can I get Wi-Fi to get on a, maybe at the school will offer them a tablet or a computer so that I can help my child learn. That, that's not their base, their first thought because they're just surviving and trying to make sure that their children are safe or that they're fed. So I think and that will be a huge issue, even especially with the meals. A lot of them are getting their breakfast and lunch at school. Um, so I really, I, I really don't know what that will look like. It's amazing what you just said is what I hear from our na- neighbors, our immigrant and refugee neighbors, as they've had to flee different circumstances. Uh, in my community, it's usually violence. Um, that's what they're saying about their experience with their children in their home country uh, that we weren't focused on educating our child right now. We're just thinking about keeping them safe, feeding them, clothing them. Where are we going to be? How, we, how am I going to stay together with them? Becca, can you just unpack that a little bit more? Because I feel like you're on the verge of making an important connection that I'm, I want to keep up with. Can you keep going? Yeah, I just think it, is a picture and um, an example of shared experiences, even if it's in different locations, I mean, countries across the world, but it's the same feelings. And that feeling of um, worry and, and fear um, for your children, for your family, that they're they're sharing experiences that are connecting them, that they have an understanding of each other that people who don't go through that will not have. Similar with you, what you're saying, Caven, you had that feeling of experience under the bridge of feeling dehumanized just because of where you were, your location. So you had um, just that feeling and small shared experience. So you can relate, maybe not completely, but at least knowing that feeling gives you empathy for others. So these two groups that are going through different experiences, but sharing a similar experience and similar feelings, they're going to connect with each other and understand each other way better than someone who hasn't gone through those things and doesn't understand those feelings. And yet both of those groups of people are tragically excluded from so many of the power structures that determine whether or not they're going to have a flourishing life. And 
what's amazing to me about what you said, Becca, is that it seems to be without, without you meaning it at all, but simply speaking the words into existence in some ways can be misinterpreted as like an attack on American exceptionalism, right? <laughs> to say that children growing up in Afghanistan are experiencing the same thing as children growing up in Milwaukee confronts this idea of what it means to kind of be this great American country. It kind of takes the the blindfold off in some ways to say there's actually similarities between Afghan refugee children and families in in suburban Midwest America. Um, even like even I know you living in Kenya and what we would see, um, there have been times where I've I've even made those connections just internally of, um, oh my gosh, this is this is something that I I see when I'm at home, um, which I, lately I've been thinking that more and it, it's it's a little overwhelming for me. To think that it's something like you're saying that I'm seeing in America, um, especially you know growing up before coming here, or when you would hear about America, it's this this great wonderful place, and and people you know don't struggle. But then obviously in the work that I do and what I see, um, there I have seen bits of that. But I think more recently, I'm even making connections to um, families or individuals that I've worked with at home and how they're living um, with with how people are here, which is it's just, there's days where it's overwhelming because there's, there's so many resources here and um, there should be more supports in place. Um, but like you said, unfortunately, a lot of the decisions made don't take that into account or those groups of people into account. Um, and I don't know what you guys, tell me what you guys think about this thought. Then it feels like also within our structures, we um, will push people against each other. Do you know what I mean? Like here you have these two groups of people that are going through similar experiences and yet it's like how things are set up. We almost put them where they should be against each other to see like who could get a little bit more. Do you, do you know what I mean? Like how we treat others or how we'll um, put people in different boxes and categories and then almost make them fight amongst themselves to get like more to get more of what they they need you know what i mean almost like hunger games like yeah. how they would <laughs> take people and make them fight even though it's like everybody needed something but you're putting people against each other for your for so you keep the power for yeah. your own benefit and they're still struggling i don't i don't know what do you guys think of that thought oh, i was just wondering if you'd be able to give an example of of that even with where you're working and what, what that looks like so here I see um, a lot of um, misunderstandings between uh, the people experiencing homelessness here in Sacramento and our refugee neighbors um, refugees are given sometimes um, like a bike or something like that and it will uh, many times then be stolen and it is always blamed on uh, someone who's experiencing homelessness so it's it's like they're almost being pushed to see each other 
in a negative way um, because of these experiences, that it almost seems like we've set it up so that they have a negative experience. Not, not we as in me, myself, but almost like our structures here in the United States. Yeah. So instead of there being a structural narrative that says, you know, gosh, why do Target and Walmart throw away thousands of bikes a year? There's a structural narrative that says there's only one bike for this number of people fight over who gets it. Is that kind of what you're going after, Becca? Yes. Yes. Oh, wow. Have either one of you guys read um, Nick Kristoff's new book, Tightrope? No, I haven't. No, not yet. Okay. It, it blew my mind because he and his wife go back to his hometown in rural Pacific Northwest. I think it's in Oregon. And they just begin to study the kids that he went to high school with. And they look at the number of kids who have died from overdoses or obesity, the number who are in jail the number who are experiencing joblessness or homelessness. And he comes from a predominantly white rural American community. And so, you know, Nick Kristoff has done this incredible journal, uh, journalistic research all over the world. So now he's kind of brought that to bear on America, on the U.S. And in his book, you know, one of the incredible, many, many, many incredible things that he discusses in it with his wife um, is he talks about that tension between, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps versus like there needs to be some kind of government involvement. And he makes an interesting correlation. And I'm, I'm, this is a long winded way to ask you guys a question on, on what he says, but he talks about how when, when all the research was in the more that the people at the top carried the mindset that there needs to be more government assistance and at the same time, and the more the people at the bottom carried the mindset of we've got to work hard to bring, you know, bring ourselves out of poverty. When those two things were linked together, it created the most successful programs. But when everyone in the society, top and bottom said, we all have to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, very little people could. Very few people could. And when both top and bottom said there needs to be more handouts, very few people rose above poverty. And it was this interesting link that he made because, again, to Becca's point, our structures seem to go the other way around. That from the top, we're telling people on the bottom, oh, you just got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And from the bottom, people are crying out towards the top saying, would there just be more help, please? And in, and if we could just switch those narratives, Nick Kristoff would believe that that could actually alleviate a lot of hardship for those who are marginalized by society. But what are your thoughts on that? Um, I, I, that's very interesting. I would like to read that. But um, I do agree that there needs to be a balance um, because, you know, unfortunately with what I do, I can't tell you how many people... Um, once they realize what I do or like, I don't understand why there's so many homeless people. All they need to do is just get their life together. There's, you know, rehab facilities, whatever that might look like. There's services out there. If, if they can just get themselves 
even a part-time job, anything, they'll be able to get their life in order and and the whole, you know, the bootstrap um, analogy that you used. Um, and I think trying to explain that it, it's not that simple um, and that I think there does still need to be that support from the top, but there needs to be that balance of kind of coming alongside someone who's uh, ready to, to you know, whether it's go to rehab or or find housing, they, they still need that support because a lot of people don't have, are starting with nothing. Um, and that's, that's very difficult, especially for someone who is homeless and may, may have either a terrible rental history or no rental history or difficulty finding a landlord or um, finding someone that will employ them if they have uh, a criminal history. Yeah, I totally agree with everything Mimi just said. Um, yeah, it's like getting everyone on board with that idea to give people a chance. Give them a chance, if, whether it's in a job or in housing or whatever it is. It's very similar hardships that are being faced by our our refugee neighbors. Yeah, just who because they don't have a rental history. They don't come with papers in their education it doesn't transfer over so they can't work the job that they were working before whatever it may be it's just like who's going to give them a chance and I think what's said about giving someone a chance uh, I think some people see it as well they were given they were given a chance and it didn't work out but a lot of the individuals that I work with they might need two or two or three opportunities um, you know it's, I think it's the same for us if, I can't imagine where I'd be if I was only given one chance in certain areas of life, or here's your one opportunity. If you it doesn't go well, or you mess it up, too bad. That's it. You're done. Um, so I think there needs to be that that grace and just that. Hey, you might you might fail. Things might not go well, but let's let's try this again. Maybe let's set it up differently, and maybe this this situation works better for you. And that's our show. Thank you so much for joining this ongoing conversation as we seek to unearth meaning in the everyday stuff of life. For show notes or to connect with this community of seekers, visit us online at www.ofdustanddivinity.com. Join our Facebook group, which is called Of Dust and Divinity Podcast Community, and engage us on Instagram at Of Dust and Divinity, all one word. Hey, and if this conversation was meaningful to you like it was meaningful to me, Leave a rating and a review on your favorite streaming platform so that more people just like us can discover this podcast and join the conversation themselves. And don't forget to subscribe. Here is a sneak peek of the next episode. Enjoy. Um, there are, you know, conversations I'll have with people where they say, yes, you are a black woman. And that, like you said, that is what people see first um, for hearing your story or anything else. Um, but I've, you know, had people say, but you don't fully understand the African-American struggle because you are an immigrant from Kenya. Um, but then on the other hand, I think um, I have lived here um, for uh, now even more so than I lived in Kenya. Um, and I unfortunately have had, you know, racist experiences and um Obviously, my, my background is different um, than some people who have grown up here as African Americans, but there are um, areas that I'm able to relate and I think explain, like I, I understand where you're coming from, I may not understand all of it, but I am also very much so affected by what's going on. A huge thank you to my wife for supporting this passion project. 
And a great big thank you to Michelle Lim of the Everly Collective for all the brand content, including the name of this podcast and the cover art. As you go through your day, remember these words of Rainer Maria Rilke. Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves. Do not seek the answers which cannot be given to you for you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now.